This is Alan Gilman, and you're listening to Thinking Biblically for Monday, February the 17th, 2020. This is the Thinking Biblically podcast with Bible teacher Alan Gilman. Alan regards the entire Bible as the only inspired written Word of God. Through his teaching, he seeks to apply all Scripture to every area of life. More information about Alan Gilman's Bible teaching is available at his website, alangilman.ca. Welcome back to Thinking Biblically. This is the third week of our new format, uh, where I'm being a little more conversational instead of reading out articles, which I might do in the future again. Um, I've got some notes in front of me, and I want to discuss with you some really important things about how to better understand the Bible, how to think biblically in an authentic way. There are many people that uh, believe in approaching life through what we call a biblical worldview, but don't realize that we often look at the Bible through skewed lenses. So instead of, of reading the Bible on its own terms, we we even as we try to allow the Bible to speak to us, we come in with certain kinds of presuppositions that skew, confuse, undermine what the Bible is trying to actually tell us, what God is saying to us through His written Word. And so we want to learn how to understand the Bible on its own terms. And so I've discovered three really major skewed lenses through which many people, including myself in the past, have uh, looked at the Bible. And and I brought it up last week. I, I shared with you what the three things are. I'm, I'm going to review that briefly and get into the third one, which I actually think the, the third one is the antidote to all three. And I'll explain as I go along. So the three skewed lenses, I think these are the three most popular skewed lenses through which people seek to read the Bible, are the first one is platonic dualism. This is seeing the world and seeing the Bible through an incorrect perspective of a split world of a material world that isn't really connected and integrated with the spiritual world. And very often, it, the spiritual world, that's the ideal world, the better world, and it's called the more real world, as if there are various kinds of reality. There's only reality. God created the universe, the things that we see, the things that we don't see, and either things are real or they're not real. Uh, we could be looking at something real and we can be misunderstanding it, but it's misunderstanding something real. We could be imagining something that is not real, um, but it's either real or not real. There isn't real and more real. Uh, so the idea that it's the spiritual things, uh, and I guess it's the good spiritual things that are the good things, but the material world is seen as the substandard um, uh, substandard, and sometimes evil reality. And, and that's not the biblical viewpoint. God created the universe very good. And the reason why we have issues, we have problems, we have evil in the world is not because the material world in and of itself is evil and bad. It's because our first parents 
disobeyed God and listened to the evil one, and as a result, God cursed them and the, the ground, the material world. And from that time when, when God first cursed uh, the earth, he promised that he would restore it. And that's much of what the Bible is all about, the restoration of the cursed world. And so the, the more we see how life is fully integrated, the things spiritual, things material, the better we will be. And we need to read the Bible through an integrated lens, not a split fragmented one, a platonic one. The second skewed lens is reductionism. Reductionism has to do with taking the the Bible, which is, for the most part, uh, narratively based. It's story, it's stories, for the most part. Almost every bit of scripture has some sort of narrative context. Most of it happens in a real place, in a real time, about real people doing real things, uh, as opposed to fictional stories. Uh, there are fictional stories, but even things like... Uh, Yeshua's parables, Jesus' parables, uh, are fictional stories to make certain kinds of of points. Um, They're spoken by a real person at a real time in a real place, Yeshua, Jesus. And much of what the parables talk about are speaking to real people at a real time in a real place about real relevant things that they would have understood. They're, They're not disconnected stories getting back again to the influence of Platonic dualism. Uh, They're stories that integrate within the cultural, religious, and historical, and geographical context in which they are spoken. And what reductionism is, is taking the... Uh, God's Word that comes to us through a narrative structure and reduces uh, them to morals. Um, uh, I'm not talking about morality, but a moral to learn. And, you know, the moral of this story is that kind of idea. uh, Or abstract concepts. And, And while learning about what the Bible teaches about love and justice and and work and sexuality are all very important. We need to discuss these concepts within the narrative structure that they've been given to us. The, and, and we need to be very careful not to detach, back to, Plat- back to Platonic dualism again, detach the concepts that we're learning from Scripture from the context of Scripture in which they are found. We are better off musing over the stories of Scripture than trying to expound abstract concept upon abstract concept upon abstract concept, which is often the way uh, theology has been done. I mentioned I don't think there's anything wrong with systematic theology, and there's a thing called biblical theology. Theology is great. The study of God, especially through His Word, of course, Uh, but we need to keep what we're learning within the confines of the story of Scripture. The the third skewed lens, and the one that we're going to focus on a little bit more this week, the technical term for it is super-cessationism, and I think I said it wrong again, it's (laughs) super-cessionism, more properly known as replacement theology. We don't want to confuse it with the idea of uh, cessationism, the idea that... uh, God doesn't do miracles today, or that the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are that are present in the the New Covenant writings, the New Testament, uh, that they died out, and that's another topic. We 
talk about that another time. Many people talk about this topic uh, that you know, I, I believe that that God has not changed and that the uh, his power is to be expected to be seen in and through our lives today. And I only bring that up because we don't want to confuse that idea, that abstract concept of of cessationism, cessationism with supersessionism, which is replacement theology. It comes from, the, the fancy word comes from supersede. And it's the idea that the New Testament people of God, normally called the church, supersedes the Old Testament people of God, Israel. And that's expressed in a whole variety of ways. Uh, and, and often what it is, is this idea which is fundamentally correct that with the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Yeshua, Jesus, God fulfills his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He fulfills so much of the prophetic expectation throughout the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. And in Yeshua, the expectation of what God was planning for the world, I refer to the promise given all the way back in Genesis 3, uh, that the the breaking of the curse would happen one day through the uh, the crushing of the serpent's head, as it speaks about there in Genesis 3, uh, that that is fulfilled in the Messiah. But for a lot of people, fulfillment means um, come to an end. Uh, that is, there's a goal we were expecting. It's we've we've come to that goal, and so we're done. And maybe we're on to something new from there. And there are things that are new with the coming of the Messiah. There are some things that um, are are brand new. Uh, there, there are things that people never really expected before, though they're hinted at in Hebrew Scripture. Uh, but there's so much of what God is saying in the Hebrew Scriptures that is fully realized through Yeshua. And that's what I believe fulfillment really means. It's fully realized in Yeshua. And there's a lot of people that would agree with that kind of understanding of fulfillment, uh, that God's promises being fulfilled in Yeshua doesn't mean that they're over and done with because he's fulfilled them. You know, I promised I was going to give you, uh, take you out for your birthday, and I took you out for your birthday, and it's done. Maybe there's other promises for future birthdays, but that promise is done. We don't return to that promise again and again after it's done. And there are certain things about Yeshua that are done. Micah chapter 5 speaks about Messiah being born in Bethlehem. That's done. That's not going to happen again. So, of course, there are some promises that are over and done with, and we should be very happy and excited about that. I was when I first learned about the prophecies over 40 years ago, when I was almost 19 and God radically changed my life, when I saw the Old Testament prophecies for the very first time, totally blown away. And that was just the beginning of what God was going to do in my life. And so there are many things about Yeshua that he fulfills and they're over and done with. But fulfillment is, is more about uh, come to be fully realized. It's as if the expectation in the Hebrew Scriptures is like pictures in a coloring book, and I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to degrade this or downgrade it in any way, but the promises give to us these outlines. And in the Messiah the colors are filled in. More than that, the colors, the texture, the background, the purpose, all comes to 
uh, comes to be filled full, comes to be realized. We understand it like never before. We can experience it like never before. It all makes sense like never before. And we can live in it like never before. Did I say that already? Doesn't matter. You get the point. Fulfillment is, is more about realization, not about over and done with. So what's happened with replacement theology, which has really been the default setting with relationship to the church and Israel in most of the church for most of history. The idea that God had a plan to rescue the world from sin and the curse. He chose the the Jewish people, the, the people of Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for a purpose. And then that purpose was fulfilled over and done with in Jesus. In fact, because the majority of Jewish people rejected Yeshua as our Messiah, God really was over and done with the people of Israel. And there's all sorts of different sub-ways to think about this. But however it's done, the church is the new people of God. And people try to find um, in in the Hebrew Scriptures how this might have been anticipated. But the, the main thing here is the idea that the church supersedes Israel. And uh, for, for, for many, and I've seen statements of faith ex- where this is stated explicitly, where the church is the new Israel. Uh, years ago, I heard a preacher, many years ago, I heard a preacher And with the understanding that the real essence of true faith and relationship with God isn't really understood until Yeshua comes and he establishes the kahila, the church, which comes from ecclesia in Greek. Kahila is the Hebrew, which really simply means the gathering or the assembly. And he, he, he... gathers people of every tribe, nation, and language around him. And this is really the essence of everything that God always wanted, which I believe is true. I believe that is anticipated when God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the people of Israel to bring his blessing to all the nations of the world. That is absolutely true. And because that's the big thing that we're anticipating and that's where the actuality of all this happens, the great realization, then some people have looked back at the, some of the great people in the Hebrew Scriptures and have thought of them as part of the New Testament group. And so I remember hearing, I think it was my first year as a believer, I was spring of of 1977 i was at a young people's uh weekend long weekend retreat and the speaker was fantastic but he made this comment he referred to david king david the one who slew goliath as a christian he called him a christian and that would fit into his biblical understanding and i think that was a skewed lens of replacement theology that went so far as to include these greats into the church the church as it's understood in the New Testament. But is that, you know, there's, for some, that, that has appeal to it. It might have some logic to it. But is it biblical? Is it how the Bible puts forward 
these ideas? And obviously, I don't think so. The strength of what we might call classic supersessionism, replacement theology, is that it emphasizes the realization of the expect of the prophetic expectation in the Old Testament. And and that and that's really important. I'm I'm going to be referring to Romans chapter eleven a, a few times in this podcast. Um and uh in in Romans eleven we have that incredible, wonderful, vivid picture of the olive tree. And we see um, how God takes these wild branches and puts them into the nurtured olive tree. And so wherever we go with this, to detach believers from among the nations from the ancient plans and purposes of God, when it was always in God's intention to eventually include all believers in his plans and purposes, and he connects the believers among the nations into the all the nurtured olive tree of which the people of Israel are the natural members the natural branches anything to detach them would be wrong any any um understanding that among the community of believers in this new covenant new testament day that anything that would create uh first and second class citizens is completely unbiblical we are all one in the messiah yeshua in in christ jesus as we read in galatians and is understood elsewhere we are one we are one family of god but it's more it's a little more complicated than that especially um there is not an understanding that this um this gathering of people this assembly of people that Yeshua calls into being, um, which eventually becomes predominantly non-Jewish, it does not replace, supersede the natural descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel. And and this is one of the key things with the term Israel. And I, I wrote a, a booklet uh, called "Did God?" Uh, sorry, God did not reject His people: the identity of Israel. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter eleven. God did not reject his people, the identity of Israel in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 11. You can get that on Amazon. You can look it up by my name or by the title that I already gave you twice. If you, I'm pretty sure if you type Alan Gilman Romans 11, you should find it. If you can't find it, send me a message and, um, and you'll be able to find it. Um, but I go through and hopefully in, in, in deep enough but clear ways in a very brief booklet um, how... Paul and God understood Israel in that very important chapter. And any and and I don't believe, and we can get to this later on, I don't believe there's any reference to Israel in the New Testament that is intended to be understood as anything but the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you might be thinking of a particular verse, write me, and I'll maybe I'll bring it further up on the queue. We could we could talk about talk about it later. But um, Israel, as far as I can understand, Israel is Israel. And the, that which we call the church, the kahila, the ecclesia, is an 
international gathering of peoples, including the distinct people of, of Israel. Maybe we'll talk about that a little more as we go along today and in, in future podcasts. And so um, we're here to talk about the different faces, three faces actually, of replacement theology. Uh, and we've been talking about so far, I'm spending time again as I, as I did at the end of last podcast, this most common view um, that Israel is the church, or the church is Israel, however you want to say that. And the sad thing, and I was, I was talking earlier about the um, how the promises of God, the expectation of God, are um, realized uh, in Yeshua, and there's so much of the expectation that finds its fullness in Him, and for a lot of people, as I was saying earlier, that means it's over and done. But no, but there's so much more of that. There's so much that God still intends to do with the people of Israel that He has not yet done. And there's the things that He is doing, is doing with us, that He's been doing all this time. I wouldn't be here if God was not still faithful to Israel. And uh, that you know, Paul in Romans 11, I mentioned this briefly. It's in more detail in, in my little book, but for Paul, Romans 9, 10, 11 deals with a crisis where it was looking like Israel was rejecting God, and therefore God was rejecting his people. And he, and he asked that question the first verse of Romans 11. I asked then, has God rejected his people? And there's a very strong term in Greek he says, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And he actually uses his tribal group as a way to express to his readers that God uh, is being faithful to, to natural or physical or ethnic, however you want to call it, Israel. Because he, a lot of people think that Paul develops this idea of a spiritual Israel which is the church. But that's not what he's doing. And as I said, we'll talk about this more as we go along, but uh, just like he can say, how could you say God's rejected? And, and notice, has God rejected his, his people? And, and some people think, well, he didn't reject his people because either he's redefined his people, which the New Testament does not teach, or he always thought of his people in this kind of transnational sort of way. But this is why this is a skewed lens. Because like the teacher who years ago called David a Christian, he's, he's reading a concept, a, a, more of a philosophy than a theology, back into the pages of the Hebrew Scriptures, and then reading the stories of these people and everything else as if there was this a disconnected spiritual reality called the church that has really nothing to do with the physical, national, ethnic Israel that still exists today. The people, I'm not talking about the state right now. And we'll talk about the land, because that's so important. And this might be a good time. There's nothing like going to the land of Israel to help you understand these things. And I was very careful with which tour company I hired to to guide our, our people, guide our tour participants in the land of Israel. And so that's why we use Shorish Study Tours. They're a ministry of CMJ Israel. They've been around since the, since the 1800s. 
and the location. We spend half the time in Jerusalem. We stay at the Christchurch guest house, which there's so much of this. You got to be there to fully understand it. It's such an amazing place. Uh, and, um, and by and large, the people of Shorish Tours and CMJ Israel understand this complexity. Uh, and, uh, and they have a heart for all people. They have a special heart for the people of Israel in the land of Israel. And you pick up some of that as we tour the land of Israel. And, and, and I've gone out of my way as best I can to work with Shorish Tours to give our participants the most authentic understanding of Israel, both ancient and current as possible, as much as we can do in about 12 days there. I call it God's faithfulness then and now, which so captures really what I'm trying to share with you today. And how replacement theology and its many faces have skewed this understanding and have left the Jewish people out, outside of what God wants to do, which, which really we can't do, because God's faithfulness to our people stands. And we'll learn some of that as we tour Israel in October if you're interested, go to israelstudytours.ca. That's .ca, not .com, not .anything else. israelstudytours.ca, and you can learn more about our October tour. Don't wait. Space is limited. And so, Paul is so clear as he talks about himself as a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And I could say the same about myself, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Levi, Levi. How do I know that? That's what my parents told me, because that's how it works. It's the real deal. We're still here because God so committed himself to our people. And uh, I was going to say, and he's not finished with us yet, but he's not finished with us at all. He's, He's been working in us and among us and with us and through us all these years. And he ain't seen nothing yet. So in classic replacement theology, supersessionism, there's no attempt at a both and. That God all along had a plan to bring his truth to the nations through the Messiah. And, you know, there's this, I don't have the verse reference in front of me, but the, the verse that says all the promises of God are yes in him, in the Messiah. I just heard a highly respected New Testament scholar say this. And, and the, the idea that because the promises are yes in him, then they're over and done with. And actually what that's saying is he's the focal point. He's the king. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of Israel first and foremost and the savior of the world, as the implication of that. At least that's, how I, that's what I believe the Bible teaches. And so his role as the king of Israel is, is fulfilled in the lives of the people of Israel and will include our restoration eventually. Okay, I mean, we'll come back to this, but this is classic replacement theology, supersessionism, uh, the, the, the idea that Israel is the church. But it's not the only face of replacement theology. There are people that would deny that they believe in replacement theology. They, they strongly assert their um, support of, of the place of, of, of Israel in God's plan. And they, and they have a heart, and I, which I so appreciate, for the restoration 
of our people back to God. But there's there's two other approaches that I want to look at as briefly as possible, where people with good intention are on one hand asserting God's faithfulness to the people of Israel while actually undermining Israel's distinction in God's plans and purposes. So, phase two of replacement theology I call Plan B Theology. You can call it something else, but I'm calling it Plan B Theology, and it goes like this, that God had a plan for the people of Israel, God will have a plan for the people of Israel, but the plan is on hold while he gathers the church. So in classic replacement theology, the church is Israel. There's one people of God, which I agree with, and uh, it, what God, whatever God was doing with Israel in times past, it now morphs into this thing called the church, and Israel as a distinct entity is irrelevant. Classic replacement theology. At some point, some people came along and said, look, I've been, reading, I've been reading the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures, and there's all these promises, and some of them are, I could see how you could spiritualize them, but there's others, they look like they're pretty literal, of God coming and doing certain things with the people of Israel in the land of Israel, and it didn't happen yet, and God is a God of, of His Word, and He's going to fulfill His promises. And so he's going to do it. He said he would do it. He's going to do it. And, uh, but they couldn't see how these promises could be literally fulfilled. And they seemed to have something to do with Messiah's return. The Jewish people had originally thought these promises would be about his first coming. and didn't understand that he had to die and rise prior to his eventual return to judge and to reign. But there are these promises about his ruling the nations from Jerusalem. But I believe because of hundreds of years of classic supersessionism, as well as platonic dualism that affected God's people in such a way that they thought that our eventual destination is to a non-material, ethereal heaven, where we're going to, I don't know, float with the angels and do nothing but sing, that that's where this is going to go. Anything to do with God reigning through his Messiah on earth, that had to happen before the great forever, ever, ever, forever, which will be in this detached spiritual reality kind of idea. And also the understanding that the, the church isn't Israel, and Israel isn't the church. And I, I, I agree with that, but I think there's a, a both end. There's a Venn diagram here. There's, there's an Israel, there's a church, and they overlap. But for people who believe in Plan B theology, there is no overlap. They actually, some, believe in two peoples of God, an earthly people who will reign uh, alongside the Messiah on earth, and a heavenly people and all sorts of other things that I don't think are in the Bible, but have been developed because of an unwillingness to see that we're supposed to be one big happy family, one big 
happy, diverse family of nations together, a complex olive tree with the restored natural branches, the natural branches, the restored natural branches, and the wild branches from the nations gathered together, all part of this one olive tree. Once we start to realize, and we need to talk this more in another time, that the Bible doesn't teach a forever, ever, in an ethereal, detached, spiritual state. The Bible teaches a forever, ever, on a renewed earth. The new Jerusalem comes out of heaven to earth. God reigns on earth. The new heavens and the new earth. He's going to be on earth. We're going to be on this new earth. And my inkling, and i got to be careful here, I, I think Jerusalem will be the center of that. That's hinted at the end of the book of Revelation. And we see at the end of the book of Revelation, the kings of the nations come with their gifts to the new Jerusalem. It gives us the idea that nations still exist. And among those nations, centered in Jerusalem, is the nation of Israel still, in, in, in ways that I don't think we can really comprehend. But we're together. And we were meant to be together. We're meant to be together now. Jewish believers, non-Jewish believers from multitude of nations together. That's not an easy thing to do. But it's what we're called to. It's not easy. We see how it's not easy. In Romans 14 and 15, Paul's dealing with that. And he's dealing with it in Romans 9, 10, and 11. The, the need to be together. Jews and non-Jews together in our Messiah. But a real togetherness can only happen when we understand our distinctiveness. And yet some people think the church, the kehilah, the ecclesia, is supposed to be uh, a community that's homogenized. You know, homogenization works. You have the milk, and naturally uh, the cream rises to the top. I remember seeing that as a kid in a glass milk bottle. Most people never seen that because... Um, most of the milk, in some places, all of the milk that's sold. A lot of it, you never see it in a bottle. In Canada, we have these, in places, we have these plastic bags of milk. We won't get into that too much, but you can't really see what we saw and what, every, what people know. Anybody who really knows anything about milk knows the cream rises to the top. But if you homogenize it, the cream gets, and the milk get all mixed up together, and then we just call the thing milk, and the cream's just there not distinct. And that's what a lot of people think the ecclesia, the kehila should be, that we should be homogenized. And I think that's one of the most dangerous ideas I've encountered in all my years as a believer because there's, it creates this idea that there's all these nations of the world and then the church becomes a nation unto itself because like a non-nation nation, but still a nation. It becomes a people itself as opposed to all the other people. So what happens is you leave your people group to become a Christian. And another teacher years ago who believed this sort of thing, he taught, he believed that, and, and it comes from this idea, it's called third race theory. Third race theory. That biblically, and that's part of why this is tricky because they think it's from a biblical point of view. We've got Jews, Physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's one race. Gentiles, they make up all the, the second category of race. And then when you become a new person in Yeshua, you're in this third category. 
And there's some truth in that. There is a newness that we experience as believers that is beyond most people's comprehension until you've experienced it. And I'm still trying to experience it. The newness that's mine in Yeshua. Mind-blowing. Powerful. Real. But I retain the good part of my heritage. Some of the whatever bad things I may have inherited personally from my parents, society, and even from my Jewish background. Things that are ungodly need to go. But there are elements of my being Jewish and my particular brand of Jewishness, the, 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 my particular history via Eastern Europe, Russia, to, to, to Montreal and Canada, that's special. That I've, I've received as, inherit, as an inheritance through the providence of God. And, and that stuff's not bad. The good stuff is good. Only the bad stuff is bad. Anyway, so this man believed in this third race theory, whether he would call it that or not. And he told me, he said, he's, as a Christian, he's no longer a Gentile and I'm no longer a Jew. We're both Christians. And I was listening to him talking. I went, wait a second, you're ripping me off. You're trying to take away. And I didn't realize then that he was ripping himself off. That there's things in his background, uh, experientially, culturally, uh, his, the people group that he was part of, that are to be part of the beautiful mosaic of, of the international gathering of people in one God, all worshiping together. Galatians 3, that talks about we're all one in the Messiah, talks about there's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's no man or no woman. And there are people that think that uh, what they now call gender, which is actually called sex, is supposed to be homogenized in the church, where it's supposed to be um, man and woman, is supposed to be totally irrelevant. And you could see, and, you know, and some believers, Christians, have been at the forefront of this kind of idea of much longer than many people in the society, where our God-given distinctives are sex, and then our, our people group, that they're irrelevant now that we believe in Yeshua. And it's, this is bad theology. It's platonic. It's splitting things material from things spiritual. God didn't create that kind of world. You can go into that further, but I'm not going to. There's something, also, there's something very insidious. I'm glad I was able to get that word out. Insidious in this plan B theology. Because it's in there without speaking directly to particular people. I'm not judging anybody. I'm, not po- I'm pointing my finger right now. But it's not necessarily a you. You decide that. But for a lot of non-Jewish believers, there is a great intolerance towards Jewish people. And I know there's another group we're going to talk about in a, in a moment. Another group that just loves Jewish people, loves being around Jewish people, loves Jewish things. Some of that love is genuine. Some of it is overly sentimental. I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. But for much of church history, the church couldn't tolerate Jewish people, Jewish things, Jewish influences. Church laws were passed forbidding Jewish-type practices. That's why Easter is celebrated 
at a different date most years than Passover. It became illegal in the church for people to remember the death and resurrection of Yeshua when it actually happened, Passover. And then moved it to another time. And I believe one of the things that drives, not necessarily with you, but one of the things that drives Plan B theology is the church can't really tolerate the presence of Jewish people. And so you can be part of us, that's good, but you have to give up who you are as a member of ethnic Israel and join us, the church. Later on, God's going to take the church away and he's going to work with Israel again. Never will the two meet sort of thing. Very, there's, again, without implying intentional anti-Semitism in Plan B theology, it's there. It's there in both of these views. That the, there's an intolerance of the Jewish people and Jewish things. And so, either way, they have to either be absorbed, kept out, or kept for another time. They've been replaced. Okay. Phase three. I call phase three, and there might be people that have been cheering to this point, and I might offend you at this point. And that is, I call phase three, of the, the third phase of replacement theology, I call it spiritual Semites. Spiritual Semites. It's the idea that um, believers in the Jewish Messiah somehow become spiritual Jews. Because actually Semites are more than Jewish people, but the term Semite often is associated with Jewish people. That's anti-Semitism has to, is really anti-Jewish people. Okay, it's not anti-all Semites in the world. And so I'm using spiritual Semites um, as a sort of a, it's like a reverse kind of thing. It's, this is a philo-Semitism, a love for Jewish people and Jewish things. Um, and many people, and even people that aren't very, very super positive about things Jewish and the land of Israel and all the rest, understand this. And many people in the supersessionist camp, classic replacement theology, believes this. And they take this idea from Romans 2, verse 28 and 29, where we read, Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And the idea here is that believers, Jewish or Gentile believers, are the true Jews. Because a Jew isn't one who's merely one outwardly, but they're not getting it. But Paul is actually talking about, like, for people who claim to be Jewish, because their parents are Jewish, or they've joined the Jewish people, they're Jewish on the outside, just because you're Jewish on the outside, that doesn't mean that through and through in your life, you're living out an authentically Jewish life. An authentically Jewish life is one that obeys God. An authentically Jewish life is one that welcomes the Messiah into our lives. And it's an authentic through and through sort of thing. But when somebody isn't living up to their calling, that doesn't mean they're not that thing. I mentioned that my family are Levites. We're descended from the, the, the priestly class. The subset of the Levites are the Kohanim, the priests. 
My wife is descended from the Kohanim. She says she married down. Half a joke, but it's kind of true. And I remember standing for the first time overlooking. There's a, there's a place before you go down these stairs, before you get to the plaza uh, at the Western Wall. And I'm staring at it for the very first time in my life. Um, and um, I'm looking at that and I'm saying, that was our place. That was our place. But my relatives, we, we don't live like the priestly class of people. There's a lot of, of musicianship in, in my family. My father was an amazing musician, a wonderful singer. And yet he didn't live for God. He didn't know Yeshua could care less for mo- about most of those things. He loved his jazz music. He loved the, what he called the standards. I hear some of these songs and it reminds me of him. What a waste, though. Because we, had, we were called. We, we were the ones in ancient times who were not given an inheritance of the land because the Lord himself was our inheritance. What a, what a idea. What a concept. That's... that's my inheritance is that, that the Lord had this special connection to our tribe. And yet, not only the Levites, but so many of our people couldn't care less about the things of God. And it's, they're free to do that, but this, all that we're missing out on. And so we, we weren't true Levites in that sense, because we were just Levites outwardly if we would acknowledge it at all. It wasn't, it wasn't an inward reality, but the lack of inward reality did not mean that we were not Levites. Leviim in Hebrew. And so same thing for the Jewish people generally, similar to the Levitical experience. This is not saying that anybody who has the reality of God that was intended for all Jewish people, if you have that reality, that makes you a Jew. That's not what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 2. What he's saying here is a true Jew is a Jew who is is one inwardly. There is no concept whatsoever of spiritual Jews in the New Testament or anywhere in the whole Bible. Let's go back to Romans 11 and the, the, the picture of the olive tree again. And I mentioned this already, but I'll just briefly repeat it. This brilliant picture that Paul paints has distinct branches. So there's the natural branches that are the result of a nurtured olive tree. And I, I, liked, I like to refer to the olive tree in Romans chapter 11 of God's, it's, it's an image of God's plans and purposes. And there were the people who were first part of this before, one, before the day would come when nations would be able to be grafted into it, included in God's plans and purposes. But God nurtured his plan over centuries. He did that through the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people that we now call the Jewish people, the people of Israel. But in Romans 11... He talks about unnatural branches, branches out in the wild that are, that are taken and, and grafted into the, into the nurtured olive tree. They don't become natural branches. They retain their distinctive identity as unnatural wild branches that are now 
sharing in the nourishment of the cultivated tree. It also says in Romans 11 that um, those, the ones broken off, and it's talking historically, it's not talking about specific individuals, but historically, the, those who have, are, are not believing, they've been lopped off, and eventually God can lop us back. I, I'm a regrafted in natural branch. And it says that, um, it's in verse 23, Romans 11, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, that's me, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you, non-Jewish believers, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, like me, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So the olive tree of the, of the plans and purposes of God over the century, even while I was lying dead on the ground, lopped off because I was more interested in doing my own thing than caring about the things of God, and knew nothing about Yeshua the Messiah, that tree was my tree. My tree that goes back to my ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For non-Jews, that's not your tree. But now we could be both grafted in, either grafted in or regrafted in together. And we share it together. But our histories are distinct. Our natural peoplehoods are distinct. It's right for believers in the Jewish Messiah to try to connect with the goodness and reality of God in the scriptures as much as possible. But to assume this other kind of homogenization, so there's the first kind of homogenization of classic supersessionism, classic replacement theology, that that homogenizes the people of God under the guise of the church and basically makes it into a non-Jewish institution. Then there are other people that think that the that they homogenize the people of God another way, make the whole thing Jewish. And there is only the one, one nation of God, the Israel, and everybody is now part of Israel in this way, and there's no distinctiveness within that gathering. And not, neither homogenization approach is biblical. The biblical view is that the nations are distinct and together where one is not superseding the other, and that we retain our godly differences together. So we're going to leave it at that for this week, and uh, we're going to continue on next week. And uh, please um, check out thinkingbiblically.ca for past Thinking Biblically episodes. You can find out there how to subscribe to the podcast. While you're there, make sure you to subscribe to my newsletter and you'll get information like this and other announcements and other articles and, and so on. And you learn there how to support this important ministry, which is very, very appreciated. And while you're there and subscribing to my newsletter, do check out our next Israel Study Tour. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Biblically podcast with Bible teacher Alan Gilman. More information about Alan Gilman's Bible teaching is available at his website, alangilman.ca.